And once again, as we look into this amazing book, would you bow with me in prayer as we ask God to speak to us individually? You know, it's always an amazing thing to me that in a group like this with so many people here and so many different needs, somehow God the Holy Spirit is able to take weak and broken human beings such as myself, communicate His Word, and He's able to put His finger, and you know when it happens. There may be a lot of things I say in this class that don't apply to you, but when the Holy Spirit puts His finger on that place in your soul, you know He's talking to you. That's always such an amazing thing. Let's pray that He'll do it again. Now, Father, as we open Your Word once again, wash us, cleanse us, purify us from anything that would hinder our ability to receive what You have for us this evening. We do pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will be upheld, exalted, magnified, glorified, and worshipped among us as we look into Your Word again. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see Habakkuk once again confused by God's answer, but before we get into that, I want to give you a few points on prayer. Why are we here? And we talk a lot about putting on the full armor of God, but we oftentimes miss the fact that after he goes through that passage in Ephesians chapter 6, and he talks about all of the pieces of equipment, the spiritual armor that we're to put on, it's time to go to war. <clears throat> and how do we go to war? Well, we find out in verse 18 of that passage when he says, praying always in the Spirit. That is our battleground. And God has us where we are, in the place that we are, in the time in which we live, because He wants us to pray and participate with Him in the marvelous things that He's doing. Let me give you a few points on effective and prevailing prayer. I love what D.L. Moody said. He said, prayer moves the arm that moves the world. Oswald Chambers said, Prayer is not preparation for the work of God. Prayer is the work of God. And with those thoughts in mind, just a few points on how our prayers can be more effective. Number one, we have the promise from God Himself that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. James Chapter 5, verse 16. What are the ingredients of effective and fervent prayer? We've already seen them in our passage, but I'll listen for you again. Number one, perseverance. We see the perseverance of Habakkuk as he continues in prayer in verses 7 and 8 and 10 and 11. Secondly, we see that there is a harmony and a peace with other believers. You know, disharmony among the saints, particularly in the home. You know, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 that if husbands are not living with their wives with a caring and compassionate way, their prayers are going to be hindered. So we need harmony and peace with other believers, and we see that in verse 9. Third, we need to be honest with God in all our communication. 
Speak your mind. If you're confused, tell God you're confused. If you're hurt, tell Him you're hurt. Don't try to pretend to be something with God that is not a true reflection of how you're dealing with life at that moment. It's okay to be mad at Him too. He doesn't get offended. Uh, you might remember that Jeremiah, as it were, shook his fist at the heavens and asked God, why didn't you allow me to die at birth? Why didn't I die as a stillborn? He was angry. But God met him where he was, and God dealt with him in a way to carry him through that anger and to heal the hurt that he felt in his soul. There must be love and compassion for others. There must be love and compassion for others. When Habakkuk says, Are you not the everlasting God, my Holy One, the rock of my salvation? What is he talking about? He says, We shall not die. Why? Because he knows that God loves his people and he has compassion for those around him. There must be confession of sin when necessary. Sin is a barrier to our fellowship with God and therefore a hindrance to effective prayer. Secondly, Jesus stressed the necessity of persistence in prayer. Jesus stressed the necessity of persistence in prayer in Luke 18, 1-8. You might remember that He told the story of the widow who had a case that she kept bringing to the king. The king didn't want to deal with her. He kept shoving her aside and ignoring her. But every morning when the king came, she was there with her petition and she was demanding justice. And finally, the king said, this woman's going to wear me out. I might as well do something for her and get her out of my hair. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would use an illustration like that about your relationship with God? And He didn't use that illustration of that unjust judge that was uncaring and lacking in compassion because that reflects anything about God at all. But the reason He used that illustration is because that's sometimes how it seems to us that God is. When we cry as Habakkuk cried, Why, God? Why? How long must I pray? And it seems as if he's indifferent. Jesus said, Keep praying. Keep hammering at the doors of heaven. Keep bringing your case before the throne of God's grace. Third, and this just builds on what I mentioned earlier. Don't let sin destroy your prayer life. Sin will hinder the effectiveness of your prayers. Don't let it happen. Psalm 66 and verse 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I may not do anything. I may not say anything. All I have to do is to have that attitude of my attention, my affection, my devotion directed toward that which is sinful in God's sight. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 29 essentially says the same thing. Fourth, when we pray from a pure heart, we are actually entering into the mighty intercessions of God Himself. I want you to think about that one. When we pray from a pure heart, we're actually entering into the mighty intercessions of God Himself. We read in Romans 
But the Holy Spirit prays when we pray. As a matter of fact, it actually uses a word in the Greek language that says that when we're praying, the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf, but the word means to pick up the heavy end of the load. Here we're carrying a burden. We're weighed down with something. We come to God. We're pouring our heart out. On the other end, the heavy lifting is being done by God the Holy Spirit. And then we read later in Romans 8 and verse 34 that the Lord Jesus Christ at the same time is interceding on our behalf. You never pray alone. Your prayers are always the interest of God the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifth, I mentioned this at the beginning, our prayers are our chief means of waging spiritual war. Our prayers are the chief means of waging spiritual war. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, the passage that I mentioned earlier, and then Daniel chapters 9 and 10. You might remember when the angel Gabriel finally came to Daniel after his three weeks of praying, he said, from the moment your prayers began, I was sent to you. In other words, God heard the very first utterance of your prayer. He sent me to you, and I have been waging, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I have been waging warfare because I was hindered from getting to you by the demonic forces that are over Greece. And finally, Michael the archangel came. I don't know what kind of war angels engage in, the elect holy angels against the fallen angels. I don't understand how all that works but I know that it's real. And I know that the hindrance in Daniel's case and why he had to pray so long was because of that war that was being waged beyond the veil of what is visible to you and I. And if Daniel praying and Gabriel coming are working together in the plan of God for him to receive a message of revelation which you and I have in our Bibles... I have to ask myself the question, what if he'd given up two or three days earlier? What if he'd quit praying? He persisted. He persevered. He was faithful until the answer came. And then six, and finally, obedience to the Word of God is a key to effective prayer. John tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, that this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, we know that He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, we know that we have the request that we have asked from Him. Don't misunderstand that passage. It doesn't mean God is going to answer your prayer the way you think He's going to answer it. It means that that which you pour out of your heart, God will take the Holy Spirit, interprets the Lord Jesus Christ, brings the request to the Father. The Father will answer that request in the way that He knows is absolutely best. I don't know if you've ever heard the old country song, Sometimes I Thank God for Unanswered Prayers. The longer I live and the more I look back at things that I prayed for that God never gave... How thankful I am. It wasn't that those prayers were unanswered. It was that those prayers were answered right in the perfect knowledge and wisdom of God.
When God tells Habakkuk to look out upon the nations, He wants Habakkuk to get a redemptive worldview. The ultimate work of God, and we're going to see this as we get tomorrow into the second chapter, has redemption in view, has the salvation of souls in view. And oftentimes those that you would least expect would come to Christ in times of crisis and times of upheaval, such as we're going through historically now, there are people who never under any other circumstances would turn to the Lord and humble themselves in faith, and there is going to be a great harvest in the time in which we live. My prayer is that you and I will be a part of that. My prayer is that we will be workers in the field that we will be the ones in the right place at the right time, how important it is to be in step with the plan and the purpose of God. To be at that right place. Nan and I were fortunate enough to be able to go back to Australia and see our three children and seven grandchildren that are over there. and It was a wonderful thing to visit with them, but you know, God has appointments for us that we are not aware of. And as we sat in an airport, just a typical day in our lives, getting ready to move from one place to the other, and as we sat there, the uh, stewardesses brought a lady in in a wheelchair. She was uh, obviously quite upset, distraught, I would say. She had little bundles and bags of things that she was trying to hang on to, looked like possibly prescriptions and things that she had been given. I don't know her background, but my guess is that she was just told that she was going to die. She just had that aura about her. And as she was sitting right there in front of us and she kept fumbling with things and, and dropping things, I just stepped over and I said, ma'am, could I help you gather all these things together? And she said, oh yes, please, that would just be so wonderful. And so I gathered everything up and there was an empty seat there by her. And I said, let me just set these things right here and that way you won't have to keep trying to hang on to them. And... and she thanked me and I went back to sit down by Nan and I started praying for this woman. And I began praying that I could share the light of Jesus Christ with her. Now my hearing is not all that great, so if you talk to me and I go, huh, it's because I didn't hear what you said. But I didn't hear this. She looked over at me. Nan heard it. She told me later. And she said, life is so hopeless when you have no hope. Something along that line. Life is hopeless when you're helpless. Think of this poor woman. Think what her life means to God. Think how long she's been on this earth without ever coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I happen to have one of the little salvation coins that asks the question on one side, where will you spend eternity? And on the other side, it has John 3.16. And as they called for our flight and we got up to leave, I walked over and put my hand on her shoulder and I said, ma'am, I want you to understand something. God loves you. And God sent His Son to prove it by coming into this world and dying on the cross for you. And I said, please read this coin and consider what it says. And I left it with her and I went my way. That's been now a month ago. I'm still praying for her because I want to see her in eternity. It was a divine appointment for that moment, for that hour. 
We need to be prepared for those divine appointments because there is nothing that you and I can think of, plan for, desire, hope to achieve that is more important than the fact that we may lead a person and just pointing them. You know, if you were in complete dark, if, if we were to go outside tonight and let's say that there was no lights anywhere and 10 miles away someone struck a match, if it was in your line of sight, you could see it. They warn guys in the military about this. That's why you don't light up a smoke when you're out there on the battlefield because if it's in the pitch dark, that little light can be seen miles and miles and miles away. When we show the light of Jesus Christ in the darkness of this world, it's unmistakable. And people will come to Christ. So we deal with the question... And I brought it up last time. A loving God allowing the evils in the world. And I told you to write down the word theodicy. It's the uh, T-H-E-O. I almost started speaking Greek to you. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. It's a doctrine that many people have not heard of, but it deals with a question, how do we justify God when we look at all the evil in the world? And I mentioned that the reason that God allows evil is because God created man as a bearer of his image and gave him the greatest gift that we could possibly possess. It's called the gift of free will, the gift of self-determination. And therefore, God allows people to make wise decisions and God allows people to make evil decisions. And if we wanted God all of a sudden to stop the evil in the world, how would you feel if He decided to start with you? Have you ever broken a heart? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever taken what was not yours? Have you ever slandered someone and tore them down when speaking to another person? We've all done it. We like to look at the evil in others, but we excuse the evil in ourselves. And so as we begin to piece together the scriptural answers, and there are answers and they're very, very clear to these questions, we begin to understand that we serve a God who is far greater, far wiser, and far mightier than we really have come to understand to this point. Because there's another thing that goes along with the biblical teaching of theodicy, and it's called concurrence. The doctrine of concurrence. The doctrine of concurrence tells us that God is a sovereign God who has a perfect plan that He is working out in the midst of this world with all of the good and the evil, with all of the wise and the foolish, with all of the right and the wrong, and He is going to accomplish that plan to perfection. So I want to give you a few points on theodicy and concurrence. You may have never heard of these things before. How can we explain the evil in the world how can we justify God in the face of the accusations of those who blame Him for the evil? Number one, evil originated in the heart of Lucifer. Evil originated. It is not of God. It originated in the heart of Lucifer, the mightiest of all angels who rebelled against God. And you can read about it in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, and in Ezekiel 28, verses 11 to 19. With the rebellion of Lucifer, evil became a reality. 
Point two, evil entered the world when Satan deceived Adam and Eve. Actually, we're told that while Eve was deceived, Adam wasn't. Adam knew full well what he was doing. When Eve ate the fruit, Adam stood there considering, and I'm, I'm assuming some things here, but he had to be considering, okay, this is a woman that God gave me. There aren't any others around. Either I'm going to follow her and keep her, or I'm going to have to choose to do the right thing and lose her. And essentially, his choice was a choice between the woman and God. And he chose, chose the woman. And therefore, that evil that began in the heart of Lucifer entered into God's creation, which before that moment was very good. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 8. Romans 5 and verse 12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. When we talk about sin and we talk about evil, we need to make some distinctions. Sin is a reference to the act, whether we're speaking of the mind, whether we're speaking of the tongue, or we're talking about overt deeds. We call those deeds, thoughts, or words sin. But the Bible uses evil as a more pervasive word. It's something that is much deeper. When we talk about evil, we're talking about the harm and the pain that is caused. The act of sin, again, thought, word, or deed, harms a human soul. That's the evil. The words that are often used for evil, whether in the Hebrew or the Greek language, often refer to that which is vain, that which is vanity, that which is emptiness, but primarily the idea is that which hurts, that which causes pain, sorrow, and suffering to other people. All men are sinners, we know from the Scripture, but not all men seek and relentlessly pursue the deeper levels of evil. So this brings us to the idea of theodicy. How do we reconcile a gracious, loving, powerful, sovereign God for even allowing evil into the world. Well, as I said a few moments ago, let's say that God was going to stop evil. I had someone ask me this one time. Uh, it's been a few years ago, and they came up and said, if there's a God, why doesn't He stop evil? And I said, well, let's imagine for a minute if He was going to do that, how about if He started with you? Because the only way to get rid of evil is to get rid of evil people. People who make evil decisions. People who choose things that cause harm to the souls of other people. So let's say that today God's going to stop evil and He decides to start with you. Poof, you're gone. You can't commit any more acts of evil. Then He goes to the person next. Poof, they're gone. Then He goes to the next person. Poof, they're gone. How long would it take God to empty this planet? Wouldn't that be a great loving God to just, just kill everybody? There wouldn't be any evil. But He's too gracious for that. And his plan is far too wise. We can only truly answer the question that plagues us by recognizing that God allows us to freely choose the things that we will do. But he does it with a caveat. There are consequences. Every choice we make, every decision we make is going to bear fruit. 
Every thought, word, and deed is a seed that is planted, and it's going to have consequences. And when we read about the wrath of God falling on a people as Habakkuk is looking at the unfolding and the revelation of God's plan to bring the Babylonians, the most terrifying people of the ancient world, into the land to rape, plunder, murder, slaughter, destroy. And his soul was shaken. How could God allow such a thing to happen? God allows it to happen because He is able to work in spite of the choices we make, the damage we do, the harm that we do to bring souls to Himself. He uses the pain, the sorrow, the suffering to humble those who are willing to be humbled. And if you live long enough, and if you become wise enough, and if you review your life honestly enough, you may one day come to the point where you realize that the worst things that ever happened to you were actually the best things that ever happened to you. I was going to read into chapter 2, but I think I want to just share a couple of New Testament passages with you. If you'll turn with me, let's go to the book of Acts. How can a God of love use evil to do good? I'm going to show you. In his Pentecost message to the children of Israel, Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourself also know. I mean, he was calling these people to witness events that had just happened. Some of these people he was talking to were there when they sang the praises of the Lord and they rejoiced as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the children cried out, Hosanna! By the way, we use the word Hosanna a lot. It's what we have on our bumper plate of our truck at home. What does Hosanna mean? A lot of people say Hosanna and they don't even know what it means. You may not be aware when you say Hosanna, you're speaking Hebrew. You know what it is? It's a cry for God to save us now. Save now. That's what the children were saying. And the people gathered in. And they all got caught up like as happens in a crowd in that mob mentality and they're all singing and praising. And a few short days later, the very same people are saying, crucify Him and let His blood be on us and on our children. And boy, did that ever happen. So Peter calls on these people from their own conscience to testify that he was attested by God by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did uh, through him in your midst. Now note verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. God's perfect plan worked out in the evil of those who cried out for his death. 
a sovereign God controlling the course of human history, controlling the plan of redemption, and men making decisions that were totally contrary to wise and righteous decisions. Would you agree with me that the most evil thing that has ever happened on this earth was when creatures demanded the death of their Creator? When they cried out for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? You took Him by lawless hands, Peter said, and you have crucified and put Him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be held by it. The most awful and the most evil thing that ever happened in the world accomplished the greatest good and brought the greatest glory to God. Turn with me to Acts 13 and we'll see how the Apostle Paul follows up Peter and amazingly uses a passage from Habakkuk. The Apostle Paul speaking here says, verse 38, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophet should come upon you. Verse 41, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I will work a work in your days, a work which you would not believe, even if someone were to tell it to you. Right out of the first chapter of Habakkuk. What is he doing? He's weaving together the free exercise of choice that humans made to bring about the greatest evil, to accomplish the greatest good, to bring about redemption on the face of this earth. You know, I hope this will give you some hope. I hope I'm not the only one in this room who's ever broken a heart. I hope I'm not the only one in this room who has ever hurt a soul. And I certainly hope I'm not the only one who dwells on the fact and is conscious of the fact that I've done that. But I will tell you where my hope lies. God takes the worst to accomplish the best. God can work through the most horrible situation to humble a soul, to break a person's pride, and to bring them to their knees. And I pray for people, as I look back over my life, that I know I've hurt. I'm talking about going all the way back to being a kid in first grade in school, and one of the things I always tell my children and now my grandchildren, if there's a child in school that nobody likes, you be a friend to that person. If there's a child in school that has no friends, you be a friend to that person. If there's someone who's made fun of for whatever reason, their looks, their speech, their actions, whatever, you encourage and comfort and strengthen that person. Because it does make a difference. And it's a rare thing to find people in this world who have the wisdom, number one. It's only taken me 70-some years to figure some of this stuff out. How I wish I had been able to figure it out as a child. 
Come with me to Romans chapter 3. I mentioned earlier that when we talk about the wrath of God and the judgment of God, we need to understand, and Paul explains this to us in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is not God sitting up there on His throne, looking down and getting mad at you, and saying, I'm going to fire a thunderbolt down there and hit this person or this group of people or this nation. That's not the wrath of God. Do you know how the wrath of God works out? Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, makes it very clear. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to hear it. By the way, you and I are living in a nation that as the direction that we're going, it's going to become illegal to be a Christian. They're after us. You know, I've told people for years that the reason that the abortion industry is so important to the people who push it is because they've sold their souls to Satan. And people have laughed at me and they thought I was a conspiracy theorist. I said, the people at the top that are pushing this, there's a lot of mindless people that go along with them that just help accomplish their plans. But I'm talking about the people at the top. They are deep-seated, devoted, dedicated Luciferians. They have to have the blood of children. Those children are sacrifices in the minds of those people. They pray to their God. They know who He is. His name's Lucifer. And they offer Him the blood of infants. Did you ever wonder why the abortion industry was involved in selling baby parts. Doesn't that seem a little strange to you? They've been caught on camera bargaining how much for the heart of this child that was sacrificed. It's because those things are used in satanic rituals. The heart of a child is the heart of an innocent the more innocent the victim in the mind of a Luciferian, the more power we gain. The more innocence we can slaughter, the more power we gain. And people thought I was crazy. Have you noticed, by the way, that now the church of Lucifer is coming out in the open and they're beginning lawsuits. They've got two lawsuits going. One's in Indiana. I forget the other state. They have lawsuits going because they've said proving me right, this is a ritual to our God. You cannot ban the slaughter of children because this is a ritual to our God. It's in the U.S. courts now. When the wrath of God falls on a nation, as it did in the days of Habakkuk, as it is coming to pass in the time in which you and I live, God allows the consequences of our decisions to judge us. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness for that which may be known of God is manifest to them because God has shown it to them even to the point of understanding His eternal deity in Godhead. Because when they knew God, 
It's not that they never knew him. They knew God. They glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful. They became vain in their own imagination. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like birds and, and humans and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And then comes the manifestation of the wrath of God repeated three times there in Romans chapter 1. Therefore, God gave them over. You know what the wrath of God is? It's when the power and the might of an all-wise, all-loving God stops holding you back and protecting you from the evil that you're pursuing. He lets them go. He removes His restraining grace. And as you continue reading there in Romans chapter 1, you see that they go down and they go down and they go down. And Romans chapter 1 is a chronicle of where we are in the United States of America today. But here's the amazing thing. When you're a bad cook, and you're the one that puts the recipe together, and you have to eat your own cooking, it can begin to wake you up. And when we begin to feed on the consequences of multiple decisions made over years of our lives. And we say, this tastes horrible. This is, I'm not a good cook. My recipe for life is not a good recipe. We begin to wake up. And so as, as the Apostle Paul in his magnificent book, the book of Romans, I'm often asked what my favorite book is. I usually answer whichever one I'm studying at the moment, but I would probably have to say the book of Romans because it starts from the very beginning of creation and it takes us all the way into the kingdom of God. Absolutely amazing book. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you to dig into and really understand four books in your Bible. There's a guy by the name of Gregory Kukul. Spelled K-O-U-K-L, Gregory Kukul. He has a book called Reality. I would encourage you to get it. Every Christian should read this book. And I thought he was boasting a little bit when I first came across this book because it said, this is a book about reality, how it began, how it ends, and everything important in between. Talking about history. How did history begin? How does it end? Everything important in between. You know what? He hit it right on the, on the nail head. Reality. But in this book, he says there are four books of your Bible that you must understand. Number one, the book of Genesis, because that's how it all started. The book of Genesis tells us where things went wrong. Even unsaved people will tell you that the world is not the way it ought to be. They will tell you that there is something terribly wrong with reality as we know it. And they're right. Genesis tells us how the world began, how it was very good, and how it went bad. Number two, the book of John. We need to know the book of John because it tells us what God is doing about the fact that the world went wrong and how He's going to fix it. He brought His Son into the world 
and allowed evil free reign, allowed the will of Satan to be done, allowed the light of the world to be snuffed out so that you and I could have eternal life. The greatest evil brought about the greatest good. That's the Gospel of John. Then you need to know the book of Romans. And the reason you need to know the book of Romans is because it gives you the big picture. You start out in the first chapter with the creation of the world. By the time you get just even to the end of chapter 8, he's already talking about how all creation is groaning and travailing, crying out together with us as we suffer. And we go through all the afflictions of life. Why? He says because it's pointing to the redemption of the children of God. It's pointing to the kingdom. Because heaven has a cure for every ill and every evil on this earth. And it's called eternal life. And it's called the kingdom of God. And that's the only solution, the only healing that there is. And that's where we end up. As a matter of fact, I used to have people ask me, will my dog be in heaven? I'll be honest with you, I thought they were nuts. Who cares if your dog's in heaven? Will Foofy be there? <sighs> really, is this an important theological question? Well, if you love Foofy, it is. And I probably hurt some people when they ask me that because I might have, I can be kind of blunt sometimes, and I probably said, that's a stupid question. <laughs> and then God kept me banging my head away at the book of Romans. And I read in the eighth chapter how sin that entered into the world brought suffering not just to men, but to the whole creation. And the whole creation is going through suffering and anguish and affliction and pain. You watch the videos that you can see on YouTube, the lion rushing along, and here's this poor little impala that has only been born, and he's just come into the world, maybe a day old, and the lion drags it down, and you watch the other lions run in, and they're beginning to feast on this thing while it's still alive. You see the snow leopard in the Himalayas that goes after the mountain goats that walk on the sides of mountains that you just can't even believe. And the snow leopard closes in and snuffs out that life. You know what Paul tells us? Every cry of anguish. Have you ever heard a rabbit scream? When a rabbit screams... It's something that will curdle your blood. I heard one once because it was being slowly choked to death by a great big bull snake. And I was riding along and I heard it out there in the grass and just this blood-curdling scream of this little rabbit. Well, that rabbit thought I was the son of God because I went over and unwound the snake, threw him away and let the rabbit go. He thought I was his savior which I was that day. But what's my point? Every cry of anguish from every conscious creature, Paul tells us, is pointing to a hope. You know what that tells me? That tells me that everything that has suffered in this life, with the exception of those who reject Christ, because see, he said the animals were subject not willingly, 
It was not their choice. Every one of those, I believe, is going to share the kingdom of God with us. Why else would we have the wolf and the lamb lying down together and all of the animals that are spoken of that are going to be there and a child playing on the, on the uh, resting place of the asp, the viper? They're all going to be there. I can't wait to see my dog, Tao. Now I'm interested in it, see? We need to understand Genesis is how, it's, how it begins. We need to understand John. That's God's divine solution. We need to understand Romans because it's the big picture. We need to understand Revelation because it tells us how it ends. And you know the interesting thing? You can have all the different interpretations you want about the book of Revelation and in the end, they all end up in the same place. The kingdom of God. You know, there are some things that are so big that the little questions about them are almost really irrelevant. So after all this, if you've come with me to Romans chapter 3, I want to show you what God brings it all down to. This is theodicy. Verse 1 says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much every way, he says, chiefly, because unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written. This is the quote that I want you to get. That you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. I want you to get this point. There's a day coming when God will stand in judgment. Some of you just thought I spoke blasphemy. Who is the you that he's speaking to in the passage? Once again, notice it. That you, God, may be justified in your words, that is what we have here in Scripture, and may overcome, we could say prevail, and may prevail when you are judged. You know, at the great white throne judgment, every unbeliever is going to stand before God and they're going to have their day in court and they're going to make their excuses and you know where they're going to point the finger? They're going to point the finger at God. It's your fault. You ever hear people say, well, God made me this way? That's a great excuse. No, God didn't make you that way. You made yourself that way. It's not God's fault that we're sinful. It's not God's fault that we're evil. But the unsaved will stand there and try to excuse themselves and try to lay the blame on God. And in that sense, He's going to have His day in court too. You know what this passage says? On that day, He's going to be justified. He's going to prevail. He's going to overcome. And why is it? Well, the answer is given later in the chapter, dropping down to verse 21. He says, The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being, <clears throat> being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Why? Because there is no difference. God makes no distinction 
between members of the human race when it comes to them being declared sinners or when it comes to them receiving the gift of eternal life. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely. A free gift. The greatest gift the world has ever known. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, that is, satisfaction of His righteous demands by His blood through faith. What is it that is our central verse there in Habakkuk? The just shall live by faith. You will not have an answer for every problem you have in your life. And you know what? When you ask God why, He's not going to answer. Habakkuk asked why. In Psalm 13, David asked why four times in the first four verses. How long? Why? How long? Why? God doesn't answer. You read through the whole book of Job, and Job's going through sufferings that make absolutely no sense to him. And what does he keep asking? Why? God won't answer. And Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15 with a broken heart, as God told him that the love of his life would never be his wife, that he would spend a lonely existence, hated, despised, and persecuted. And he cried out and he said, Why? God never answered him. Because why is the wrong question? We need to learn to ask the right question. The right question is what? What will you have me to do? And Job finally broke through as Habakkuk finally is going to break through. And Job spoke the words that saved my life in the middle of the Amazon jungle in 1967 and launched me into the task that I continue in today. Though he slay me, yet I will serve him. I don't need to know why. I don't need to know how. I don't need to know anything other than the fact that God's in control and He is wise and He will lead me to the finish. And so Jesus Christ was set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. Here it is, to demonstrate His righteousness. To demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance... God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one that has faith in Jesus Christ. It all boils down to the overarching plan of God. And that plan was set forth publicly to the whole world when the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross and bore our sins and cried out his own why. Isn't it interesting? How much like us he became. How low he was willing to stoop. How great his condescension from the right hand of the Father in the glories of heaven to a world that is filled with sin, sorrow, suffering, and affliction. And then He hangs on a cross and to let us know that He has gone to the very depths of where we are and often find ourselves. He cried out, My God, my God, why? And there was no answer. 
and he went into the grave to be raised by the power of God the Holy Spirit on the third day to ascend into the presence of the Father, to sit down at the Father's right hand and to remove any excuse from any member of the human race of ever saying, I didn't know, I didn't have a chance. Because He made the way. I hope that you'll find the book of Habakkuk intriguing. I hope that you will follow him through his spiritual journey. He's already taken one positive step in verse 13 when he said, I know a few things about you. I know you're the eternal God. And I know you are my rock. And that is where I'll stand. And we're going to see him tomorrow morning as he says, I better get myself ready for God's answer. He's thrown out his complaint. He's poured out his heart. He's laid bare his anguish. And we're going to see him in chapter 2 saying, I know the answer is coming. And I may not like it. So I better get myself ready. And we'll see that tomorrow morning. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for your grace. Thanks for your love. Thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ who makes sense out of all this mixed up and terrible world with so much sorrow, so much anguish, so many broken hearts, so many tears all through history. And yet, Father, I pray that for those who are gathered here tonight, we can go away this evening with a thought in our mind. If we took all of the people who have been born from the time of Christ until today, more than half of them are alive on this planet right now. How great is our opportunity to get the Word out, to spread that message to multitudes of people who have never heard that there is a loving God who sacrificed His own Son so that He could give us the gift of eternal life. Let this be the heartbeat of our life as we go forward and realize that we share in the sorrows and the sufferings of others to teach us compassion and to make us reliant on your mercy and your grace. To this end, we commit our time together tonight in the words that we've heard and the silent speaking of God the Holy Spirit to each and every soul in a message that is just for that one. Let us live lives that are worthy of you, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. See you tomorrow morning.